Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we have a very special episode today. Jake's been working really hard at this one. He keeps telling me he's really, really excited about it. I'm excited. So that means I'm really, really excited about it. So I'm, I am I, I can't wait to get into this. This is episode 69. I was just going to say, do you know why else I'm excited about it? It's episode 69. Right. So the 16-year-old yeah, boy, boy in me is very excited. 16? I said 12. You said 12. <laughs> You're an early bloomer, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So uh, let's dig right in. This is one of the craziest stories that I've never heard of. Okay. So as such, it was actually really hard to find any concrete information on this. Well, that's okay. We can just speculate so I and did, spread, spread rumors. Basically. <laughs> so I did uh, a lot of digging and found details on some things, and the rest I did the best I could. Okay. So Reginald Donald Don Whittington Jr. Wait, who? Reginald Donald Don Winnington Jr. Is the Don in quotes? Like, yeah, okay. that's, so that's, like, that's his name. That's his nickname. And so William you, Marvin it, Bill Whittington were brothers. Okay. From Lubbock, Texas. All right, Don and Bill. Don and Bill. So their father was actually a racing driver who competed professionally for a couple years in the USAC Championship Series. And that was basically the predecessor to what is now IndyCar. So okay. I looked him up, and he had like a couple of years worth of pro racing. Um, not much is really known about the early life of these brothers, but their family seems to have had a decent amount of money, or at least enough for the Whittington brothers to become self-proclaimed playboys. Oh. So they spent their 20s as... Is ad- that why they have so many names? Yeah, it must be. <laughs> so they spent their 20s as adrenaline junkies. They raced planes, which can't be cheap, so that's why I surmised they... His dad did well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they raced cars and basically were complete douchebags. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to wonder what you were going to say about adrenaline junkies because if you think about adrenaline junkies back in the day, yeah. no one had squirrel suits, no one was skydiving, no one was but flying planes. I didn't give any date to this, did I? This no. Was, so they were born just in the 40s. It's the predecessor to IndyCar. So this was oh, like okay. 50s. Okay, so we're in the 50s. Yeah, it's 50s. But still, it's not like today where people are taking out their GoPros and jumping off anything higher than 10 feet. <laughs> True. So I think, but flying planes? Racing planes, not Ra- flying. Yes, racing, racing planes. planes back in the day. And, those planes and were- then, the, of course, they raced cars as well. Uh, quote, it's easy to go back out after a crash, Bill told the Miami Herald in 1983. There isn't any college you can go for this. Just the school of hard knocks, man. Whoa. So, a little bit of self-aggrandizement so there. So, yeah. That's, that's pretty good. That's Bill and his brother Don. Uh, their story really begins in 1979, however. So that's the year the brothers seriously turned their sights to auto racing. More specifically, the 24 Hours of Le Mans. All right, I'm listening. So Don and Bill arrived in France after forking out 20 grand each in cash for a drive in the Kremer Racing Team's Porsche 935K3. All right, what was their sponsor? What was the official sponsor name of this car? <laughs> that doesn't matter, but I have a photo of it somewhere. Okay, so I'm just curious. What yeah, color was it? Uh, white. Okay. <laughs> was it the Saks white car? It wasn't I mean, the Saks one, what? no. I, these are this is information. I know this is the stuff you dig into. <laughs> I was interested more in what these K3s were. Right, so you okay. probably know more about this. So the Kremer Porsches were an interesting story basically themselves. So many of us are familiar with the Porsche Factory 935 race cars, which right. was like an extreme interpretation of the FIA Group 5 rule set 
um, at the time. It basically stipulated you had to use a standard 911 silhouette or factory silhouette, but they had massive overfenders and ridiculous arrow additions. It was basically just like the central chassis of a 911. Barely. I mean, there's like almost nothing left. And everything else. But what's cool is that I, I know that my car's in there somewhere. <laughs> I you know, suppose. like when you think about it, it's yeah. like, it's like, it's in there. The DNA is there. It's actually derived from my car at right. some point. So the 935s great. are kind of like the Moby Dick cars, right? Yeah. Well, that's the Moby Dick is a long tail. Okay. So yeah. that's, yeah. But yes. Yeah. Okay. So do you know anything about the Kemmer K3s then? Basic knowledge, but go okay, ahead. Okay, so Kremer then took these factory-prepped cars, took them a step further in the rule book, stretching it even further, creating their what they call K3 chassis. It was basically the, the third revision of their 935 version. Right. So because the rear window of the car was mandated by the rule set to stay intact, I didn't realize that was one of the specifications, uh, and in the same place... That really limits you as you're building a car. It's like, oh, we can do everything, but we can't change this rear window. That's... Well, Kremer simply built a second roof and window over it. <laughs> <laughs> so they have you a you super arrow like rear that goes right into the spoiler, and you look through it, and there's their stock 911. <laughs> Could you imagine window. the guys that were like, the FIA inspectors? <laughs> and they're, and like, they're like, "Come we on, did guys! Not think of this, you guys! Come on, guys!" <laughs> <laughs> so with the rear window assembly on top of the existing one, it provided a much more aerodynamic profile for the car. In addition, the K3. I forget how much weight they actually stripped out of those 935s, but they were basically unsafe. They were just Swiss cheesed everywhere. Yeah. They yeah, were well, super light. That's most of those cars, to be honest. Yeah, but to take that even further than the factory race cars, they also replaced the air-to-water intercooler with a more traditional air-to-air intercooler setup. Or said, I should say the air-to-water was the charge cooler and the air-to-air is intercooler. That saved weight and supposedly somehow even gave them a 3% bump in overall efficiency of the engine. Well, over 24 hours, 3% a lot. Yes, it is. It adds up. Um, they also used to throw... Oh, yeah. So this is the best part, in my opinion, about these K3s. So Kremer was based in Germany, okay? Yep. And Le Mans is in France, of course. So they used to throw license plates on their factory, or not factory, the Kremer cars, and drive them from the shop in Germany to the Le Mans racetrack in France on the streets as a final shakedown before the race. Wow. How long did it t- I want to know how long it took them to get there. <laughs> uh, probably not that long. <laughs> Can you imagine seeing those going down the street or the Autobahn, though? No. Th- I mean, that's a full double take right there for sure. Yeah. Like, who needs transporters if you're just going to drive your car to the racetrack? Reason 76, this was the golden era of racing. No kidding. That is so amazing. So... All right, back to our Whittington brothers. They formed a deal with the owner, Erwin Kermer, to race on the team with the Kermer... Kremer. Te- Kremer, thank you. <laughs> team driver, Klaus Ludwig. Yep, I Ludwig. know. Yeah, I know that Ludwig. name. Uh, however, when the brothers actually showed up in France to the driver's meeting before race day, the day before, they were pissed to learn that the owner, Erwin, was going to be putting his team driver in the seat first to take the majority of the race, and then the brothers were supposed to drive later on. And so who is this driver? Do we know that was Klaus Ludwig? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So they're like, wait, wait, wait. If your driver goes first and crashes, then we won't get to race and we're out all our cash that we gave you. And Mr. Kramer goes, quote, tough. That's racing. (laughs) Basically, you don't know how it's going to shake out. 
Well, it's far more likely those two dudes were going to exactly. crash the car. But they're so full of themselves. They're like, well, hold on. So the brothers still aren't having it and ask, well, all right, what's it going to take for us to drive first? Like, we want to make this happen. What will it take? And Kremer, he's like, these guys are idiots. He jokingly states that the brothers should buy the car. Then they can do whatever the hell they want with it. Okay. And keep in mind, this Kremer was in the business of prepping these cars for customers. Yeah. So the brothers ask, how much would that take? And Kremer was tired of these guys giving him shit all morning and just wanted to shut them up. So he threw out a crazy number of 200 grand, which was actually more than he was selling his other brand new prepped cars for. Do you know what they what the other ones were being sold for? How much? One hundred and fifty, about. Okay, so, so he's significantly making, more. Yeah, fifty right? grand he's in like nineteen seventy nine. Two hundred thousand. Yeah, whatever. To his dismay, Don, the other brother, says, "Fine," and tells him, <laughs> "Quote: Go back to our trailer, go in the black duffel bag, take out two hundred thousand dollars, and not a penny more." Well, how much was in the duffel bag to begin with? <laughs> so they did. <laughs> a lot more pennies than apparently. We will get to it. Okay. It's ridiculous. So the brothers got to take their turns in the car first, swapping out with the team driver, Ludwig, who actually did most of the heavy lifting on this race okay. for the night stretch. Um, and it turns out, though, yeah, that while these... Bill and Don were sleeping. Yes. Yeah. But to their credit, Bill and Don turned out to be really freaking good drivers. The number 41 Kremer Porsche that they were driving finished 307 laps, winning the race outright. Wow. Second place that year went to Dick Barber's team so with, that was, okay. with the infamous Paul Newman racing their 935. So this was actually the first production. Oh, it's, the Philippe, it's the Philippe Silve car. I would have to see it. That doesn't uh, ring uh, a bell to me. Well, it says it's the number one, number 41. Klaus yeah. Ludwig, Dodd Whittington, Bill. Yeah. Yep. Don this is Bill. all kind of starting to click in my you, head now. You like know some of the references Yeah, here. yeah. So what's interesting, though, this was actually the first, quote, production car to win Le Mans since 1953, which I think is really funny that 935s you know are considered production cars. Funny thing, though, is I remember when I talked to Dick Barber about this race. Yeah. And you should have told me because I could have pulled quotes about this this particular race from my interview with him. Yeah. But one of the things that he took real pride in okay. is he didn't have any money. There was no right. there was no duffel bag full of money. I remember for you this telling guy. me that. So he the people that worked on his cars were all PCA volunteers. So they were just like regular dudes. But the thing is is that he was the people still wanted to race from him because he ran such a tight ship and everything was right. really safe and well done. And and then he would win anyway. I think he was probably pretty upset that they didn't I think they um, there was like a stuck wheel nut on, oh, really? on, on the the Hawaiian Tropic car. So they got 190 or 299 laps in the 24 hours, and this winning car got 307. Yeah, the there was a stuck, like 296. They couldn't get a wheel off. There was a stuck wheel nut on a car, <laughs> which is why they lost. <laughs> it was interesting though. I didn't include it in the story because it's not super paramount. But apparently, the 41 Kremer car broke a fan belt on the back straight. And I don't, was it the fan belt or some like oil pump belt? But something where like they needed to fix it right there. And Don was well, so no far ahead. Belt. I know you're right. So I don't know what it would be. But <laughs> at be any that. rate, he had to get out and like put a belt on in the middle of the track. That's awesome. I mean, what, I, what can you say about that? What Donna would that belt? be though? Because an alternator butt belt, you would still be able That's to get the fan back belt. To the pits. The fan belt, you would probably need to stop because the car is obviously going to overheat in the True. fan belt and the alternator belt are the same thing. Right. So it could have been like, a, honestly, I don't know what was up with that engine, but it could have been like an MFI pump, maybe. That's what it, I was wondering too. Because it's a little, or, little, little yeah, belt that runs that the MFI would make pump. more sense. It's um, the only other belt I can think of. Yeah. So this was the first production car, like I said, to win Le Mans since 1953. Cool. 
we're losing production. production car that's what engine. I was just gonna say. Yeah. How funny is it that they consider this a production car, but compared to like these full off prototypes, that makes sense. So it's crazy they won outright when you consider they're up against like Porsche nine thirty sixes and like crazy prototype cars like that. Um, we do have to note, however, that the 1979 Lamar race was hampered by rain, which apparently these K3s and 935s were just monsters in the rain compared to like any other car on the road in K or on the grid, including these prototype cars. Okay. Um, so this was actually the last production car to win at Le Mans period. Cause after that, it was all prototypes that took the podium. So the win was obviously huge for the Kremer team overnight. Kremer? Yeah. There were over 14 orders for his K3 race cars the night they won. Wow. Good for him. That's a lot so to order race So cars. he was probably like just kicking rocks the whole time. And then when they won, he's <laughs> probably he like, holy like, shit, this oh, is the best $200,000 yeah. I ever made. Yeah. So there's 14 of these K3 cars ordered. And that's what actually lined up the next year in 1980. It was all K3s. Like the famous Macintosh sponsored car, which was the only car ever sponsored by Apple. That's actually the same car as the Hawaiian Tropic car. Is it really the yeah. Apple car is? It is the same car. That's really cool. Yes. I didn't know that. They're both Bob Garrettson cars and Dick Barber. Well, I, it's not the same chassis, though. Yes. It is. It is the car. I, that car, I, it, I wish it was the Apple livery today. So um, I guess Adam Kroll is building another one. He, he bought like a car, and he's going to build like a kind of like a replica to have replica. them together. Which I think is pretty cool. That the problem cool. is, is that the other one's so valuable because it was, it was at Le Mans. Right. This, the, when it was, you at, can't just change it. Because right. You it want went back to. to Le Mans in the Apple livery, but it the uh, I think the crankshaft broke or something like that. Like Yikes. it's just the car it was a DNF did not finish. Yeah. So it's much more valuable as a car that won its class. Right. No, you know, that makes sense. You know, second overall, whatever won yeah. its class. It's that was such an iconic livery though. Yeah, that looks Apple. awesome. It's it really sweet. does. And it is cool. I never thought about that. It's like, oh yeah, what what was Apple? You think about that? Although today, the pictures them the... doing like a sponsorship of racing series? No, nothing. Right. Well, that's the uh, what's this what's the Apple guys? What's their names? Steve Jobs. Steve, what's the and, other guy? Uh uh people are shouting right now. Um but, uh Watts, uh there's a Z Watsky um Steve, Steve Wozniak. He actually would go and to uh like Bob's shop. Bob Garrettson. Oh, really? And they actually got together and decided to do this thing together. So he was like a he was like a Porsche dude. Okay. Steve Wozniak was. So that's kind of kind of where that comes from. Interesting. So back to the Whittington brothers. That night after they finished the race and won, they're like on top of the world, right? They're thinking highly of themselves more than anything else. So they tell Kramer the car was great. It was awesome. We won. We want to buy a couple more. And Kramer's like, great, give me a call next week, next month, when we're back in the country, we'll get the orders in. The brother says, no, go back to our trailer, take the rest of the money in the duffel bag, and we'll have two more of those K3s. So how much, that means they had $600,000 in the duffel bag? They didn't even try to negotiate? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, my God. And this is in 1979. Wow. That's, that's incredible. That's a lot of cash. So fast forward. And the Whitting brothers actually do really well in racing these K3s. It seems like these guys were operating on a whole other realm of racing compared to everyone else. Like, they were that quick. And you have to imagine that Is growing up... Is it because up, they just didn't care? I will get into why they okay. were so fast. All right. So you have to imagine that growing up, Don and Bill were used to getting what they wanted. You hear about their history. And they didn't really seem that the rules really applied to them necessarily. Okay. So... One thing everyone was noticing is that it seemed like their fuel stops didn't take as long as everyone else on the track in the IMCA series. 
So it was found out later that they were skirting the rules and modifying these K3s to their advantage. Now, the fuel uh-huh. tanks in these cars are related. They literally have a regulator in the filler neck to only allow a certain flow or speed of fuel that's equal for all teams. Okay. And it turns out... Like a gallons per hour. Is right, whatever. exactly. It's basically like a limiting factor on how the diameter of it is and it turns out they gave one of the tech inspectors 25 grand in cash on the spot to approve a non-regulated fuel tank and you have to imagine this is probably this guy's annual salary this inspector so he's like uh okay so he puts a stamp on it and ended up being able to fill these tanks twice as fast as any other other team so these guys were just used to working completely outside the rules. They doubled down on sports car racing and actually dabbled in NASCAR racing for a few races. They did, I think, do they six. Do they work at all? Here's the question. Do they work at all? Oh, uh, they have investment companies. Okay. But, so no. <laughs> right. So they dabbled in NASCAR racing and also raced in a few indie races. I think I read they did like six races each in Indy and didn't do that great, but they're like just doing all of the motor racing sure and we can imagine auto racing isn't necessarily cheap people started to wonder just how deep these guys pockets really were they were racing cars that were completely blank without sponsors that's awesome i love the <laughs> i love race cars that are completely blank and like they that. started to get all this shit for it like wait how are you just like no sponsorships you're spending cash everything money's no object to you guys so they actually started making up fake companies and sponsors to plaster in their cars to thwart suspicion do we know what some of these companies were yes one of the funny stories i found is that they hired models to walk around the pits with perfume bottles and spray people as part of their new sponsors marketing campaign (laughs) the problem is there's no perfume company no sponsor they went as far as printing out fake labels to put over to store-bought perfume and like, just were like, no, oh, this is their whole ad campaign. Yep, don't question the sponsor on our car. Was it illegal to not have sponsors, or they just didn't want any prying eyes? They didn't want any prying eyes, Chris. Okay, why? Well, the trade kept going, though, partly because they were just like absolutely brilliant drivers, right? So people aren't questioning them because they're winning, too. So they became so successful that they actually purchased Road Atlanta. The racetrack. <laughs> so, Road Atlanta had a special distinction at the time, having the longest straightaway in the U.S. of any racetrack. Okay. <laughs> so, this is where the story gets it gets really crazy. Okay. Um, you see, one of the Whittington brothers' investment holding was an air freight company. So, this is where you asked if they work at all. He is an air freight company. So, they own several planes that they would then hire out to logistic companies and other private companies, many of which operated internationally. <sighs> so, I want you to pay attention to this, Chris. The story goes that many flights would come up from Mexico and land right at Atlanta Airport there. Some of these flights <laughs> happened to be at night. Okay, so what air traffic control didn't realize was that there would actually be two of the Whittington brother planes taking off in Mexico, flying in formation one below the other to avoid radar contact. And as they came into Atlanta airspace under the cover of darkness, one plane would actually land on the long straight at Road Atlanta racetrack while the other continued on to the airport. So at the track, then, the planes would be unloaded into shipping containers that were placed in the back of the racetrack. The area was fenced off, patrolled, high security. What was, no one what was in these containers? was allowed to go <laughs> into the storage space. It turns out the containers were absolutely packed full of tons of marijuana. 
Okay, so it was, it was marijuana then. Okay, It was marijuana and later cocaine. So these guys were running drugs to support their racing careers. <laughs> Hell yeah. I'm into it. I love these guys. So they continued to run their K3 cars and set actually like lap record after lap record. And they actually set like a scorching lap record at Daytona during one of their qualifying runs. They were so fast. Many of the other competitors and people who were actually paying attention to the times said the time they laid down was physically not possible with that chassis. Okay, so people are like, what is going on? So, side note, years later, that very car that posted that qualifying time was purchased by the Indianapolis Racing Museum. This was actually a few years back. They went on to restore the car, and one of the door sills had obviously been like messed with or modified, and they didn't know if it had been crash damage or what, so they actually started cutting into it and found that the sill had been completely hollowed out. And I don't quite understand, like, on these K30 or on these K3s and 935s, that sill is so much wider than right. our 911. I don't know what that's referring to. So maybe they had to, if they had to add weight to the car, maybe they would put it there or something? Sure. I have no idea. Yeah, that, that might be it. Um, so the restoration shop tracks down the Whittington Brothers' original team mechanic, at the time for some insight. They wanted to be like, you know, what was this? How do we repair it correctly? Yeah. So it's original. The mechanic's like, oh, so you found the hole. <laughs> yeah, that's where we hide the nitrous system. Oh, my God. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so in race trim, a Kramer K3 made somewhere around 750 horsepower to the wheels. In qualifying trim, it could be bumped up to another 100 or 2 horsepower just by increasing the boost. Yeah. The mechanic said they would be going around the banking of Daytona, putting down 1,200 horsepower. <laughs> temporarily why didn't they do like 850 <laughs> horsepower you know what i mean why why did they have to go for 1200 horsepower when you could just go for like if you're everybody else is making 700 maybe go for 775 why I do you have it because <laughs> they could i don't know quote this is the mechanic they would finish their qualifying lap and then the engine would be melted as it crossed the finish line but they didn't care we just throw in another engine Keep in mind, these 935 engines were $40,000 even back in the day. Wow. <laughs> so these guys just blatantly spent money and didn't care. So they had three containers full of uh, marijuana and another oh. container full of engines. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, and people knew they were rich, but no one could really figure out why. Right. They, they were like, okay, where's all this money coming from? How are you guys so like quick on the track? Like something sketchy. And that blatant spending was eventually the brother's downfall. Mm -hmm. So the feds had taken notice and in 1987, Don was charged with tax evasion, in addition to the, quote, $73 million annual income of marijuana smuggling ring that financed their racing careers. Oh. <laughs> the brothers pleaded guilty and agreed to forfeit $7 million, which is laughable when you're making $73 million a year. I don't understand where that figure came from. Don right. got 18 months in federal prison, and his brother Bill was hit with a 15-year sentence. So... What did they do after they got out? Do we know? I'm really happy you asked that because that's not the end of the story. So Bill was actually, he got early release and was paroled in 1990 uh, with Don. So the two brothers are back again. Yep. He later founded World Jet, a successful company that hails itself on its website as one of the largest private full service hangars in southern Florida. 
Then, on September 24th, 2007, a turbojet laden with nearly four tons of, okay, of cocaine crashed in the Yucatan Peninsula. Flight logs reportedly showed that the plane had flown years earlier from Washington, D.C. To, to, Quant to Guantanamo Bay. That revelation incited speculation that, in addition to smuggling drugs, the plane had also been used in the rendition of suspected terrorists. <laughs> the aircraft's owner was a shell company called Donna Blue. According to the current Miami DEA affidavit targeting the Whitting brothers, the firm was being used for Operation Mayan Jaguar, Ooh, a clandestine program run by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. The Whittingtons, the affidavit alleges, were implicated in selling the turbojet to the undercover operation. One of the jet's pilots was this dude from Fort Lauderdale, who today is a, quote, target for trafficking cocaine from South America to Central America, and is uh, part of this Miami DA affidavit. And stranger still, the investigative website uh, alleges that the pilot, who also was working for the U.S. Intelligence Operations Agency, around the same time, and the, Aust the Austrian parliament claimed two planes owned by the Whittingtons had stopped at Guantanamo Bay on missions from the CIA. Oh, so they, they flipped. So the documents raised the possibility. That was very confusing. Basically, the CIA has employed the Whittingtons in the war on terror despite and perhaps because of the brothers' well-known rap sheet for trafficking and their shady past. Okay. So I'm trying to figure out if they were with the CIA or not. It's just crazy. Wow. It's if incredible. you thought their early life was crazy, what's going on now is even more insane. So is this because they just weren't getting the rocks off on the on the whole racing They never thing went back to were... racing after their prison sentence. You know, that's probably because there's way too much crackdown and racing got way True. more serious. They're like, well, we can't fetch nitrous in any of the modern cars. Right. Um, so, so I pulled up a quote. I, that's what I've been doing is looking over here at, at the interview I did with Dick. I wanted to just see what he said about the um, the end of the race. Yeah. Because I couldn't remember if it was a wheel being locked on or not. He says, um, I asked, uh, is there anything else that was more significant that affected the race? He says, the most significant thing, of course, was the wheel getting locked on. Other than that, it rained at night hard. And it was pretty yep. traumatic for all of us. You're still going flat out. And the car is dancing all over the Molson Strait. You're very light at the wheel. You're not making any abrupt movements. You're doing or doing anything unusual. We had two changes because you you can't put it into a spin on the course. Um, he just was. I guess the rain was just incredible that night. Right, um, is what he was talking about. It was very traumatic to be doing that all in the rain. We just didn't need that. That's for sure. That's one big drama that weekend. The other thing, of course, which was exciting, was um, the cars are all photographed, and it's a giant party-type atmosphere. Fabulous that that was great. Then, of course, being on the victory stand, getting the garland put on us, having the champagne. And you got Paul Newman. And he's got, and he's got Paul Newman. That's right. And the Whittington brothers. And the Whittington and brothers. And all their who, drugs. Well, <laughs> well, he, I was, what I've been trying to find is that he's talked to me about the Whittington brothers before. Has he really? Yeah, but I don't have... Yeah, I can't I, find it's here. It's I didn't realize the connection between Barber and them. Otherwise, I would have brought this up to you earlier. Right, right. But it's a crazy story. Yeah, those guys. I had never I like, heard of it. You know, it, at the same time, it's when you think of what Dick was able to do straight right, up. Right. You know, with, it's a, like, with a celebrity driver and a, a, and a team full. It actually makes those guys look better than the guys that were running nitrous in their car exactly. just because they were able to become so close, even though they weren't cheating. Right. And I think that's kind of what, I mean, granted the they didn't have nitrous in the car at, at Le Mans that first year. Right. That was later on when they're running 1200 horsepower. <laughs> right. Um, here's a, here's another, I should honestly, I should just find the audio for this and play it. But, um, 
uh, I asked him if there's any other interesting stories from the from the race that that weekend. And he says, uh, Paul and I went up to get. Uh, and this, I'm reading directly from the transcript, so some of it's a little a little bit weird. That's fine. Um, uh, let's see. One of the names on the car is Fouquet's. You'll see that on top of the car. Fouquet's is a restaurant on Champs-Élysées that has been in many movies where the presidents go. It's a very famous restaurant there. So this giant guy by the name of Moustache, like mustache, a big round guy, he came up to me and says, Dick, I want you to meet me tonight at Fouquet's. I said, why? He said, I have some money for you. I said, Why? We want to put our name on the car. I said, okay. I had no idea what was going on, but Mustache had been in a movie with Paul many, many years ago. <laughs> Some movie. I don't know what it was, he says. So I go to Fouquet's. I meet Mustache, and he says, follow me. We go down the stairs. He's got a big brown paper sack. We go down the stairs, and we go into the men's room. In the men's room there, they have these women in their white gowns. They're always cleaning the bathroom. Right there, where you're taking a whiz, they're standing there looking at you. He says, come. He pulls me into a stall and closes the door. I say, what's going on? He said, here, put Fouquet's on top of the car. He hands me a big bag full of French francs. It's a giant bag. I don't know how much money it was at the time, but I carried it. But, of course, we all counted it later. It was like 50000 American dollars. That was just like a godsend to us. The, the big part of the story is we came out of the stall, and you could see the look in all these women's faces. It was priceless. That's so crazy. Yeah. Like, geez. why did it have to be some, like, you know, under-the-table deal? I don't know. I don't, I don't think it had to be, but I, I think, think the restaurant it, was just making a deal. Yeah, I, I don't think like. it. Why did he have to drag him into the bathroom stall to give him fifty thousand um, dollars? That's, I mean, that's a that's a You're really right great story. That whole period of like auto racing and just the people involved and just the whole atmosphere, just crazy. I wish we could go back to that. Right. Well, yeah, for sure. So that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like I, this. This interview I've got here is so full of like amazing anecdotes, and uh, it's like here. Paul and I drove a Ferrari in 1977 together at Daytona. A Ferrari Daytona on the same team. We came, we became friends there, and he invited me out to California to his studio to watch his movie Slapshot. We sat in the movie theater and had a big bag of popcorn, and we went go karting, and we just had an immediate friendship. I told him I was. Uh, I told him I was going to go to Le Mans, and he thought that we were really a professional team. He didn't want to go on a team that wasn't properly prepared. He didn't want to do Lamas, so he was okay with Joan, and she came to Lamas with us. As a matter of fact, it was a great relationship. We just stayed friends. He told me many times that this was just the most important victory of all, the most important race he'd ever been in, and he said, if it wasn't for the Pops or Otzi, I'd be doing it every year. And they were so hard on him because to, uh, to leave the pitch, pits, like they don't know how to spell. I don't, I don't think the people that do these uh, transcriptions oh, for me... Okay. No, what, yeah. what the pit says. Every place that it says Lamar, it actually says Lamar. <laughs> I didn't realize you had an auto transcribe. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, it's actually a person doing this, but right. they're, they're not very good. Um, every time we had to leave the pits, they were so hard on because to leave it, you literally had to mow down the paparazzi and knock them out of the way. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> Ross Stomelin showed Paul what to do because they were all in front of the car taking pictures. We took our fuel and our tires, and he left the pit and mowed over three of them, knocking them out of the way. Then Paul got his turn to go out, and they were at an angle, but they were not standing in front of the car anymore. Yeah, probably yeah, not. because they didn't want to get run over. So, Jeez. Um, I should pull the audio of this up one of these days. And You should. That'd be really it. interesting. I asked him if he'd come on the podcast. He said, sure, no problem. We'll so, do that, too. Then. Yeah, maybe we, maybe we could talk to him about the Whittington brothers. I would love, now that I know all of this, I'd love to hear some of his stories. Yeah, that would be cool. I, I think we should do that. Well, there you have it, the Whittington Brothers. Cool dudes, but 
<laughs> I don't know. I kind of like it. I kind of like these guys. Yeah. And I think they're. I think these dudes are kind of badass. Oh, for sure. Yeah. On that note, we will. Uh, we'll see you guys on Monday. Take care.